Chapter 5 of The Three Friends, A Story of Rugby in the Forties, by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Summer Quarter. Easter was past. Boys with pale faces, after mumps and measles, were straggling back to work and to play. And as the sun came out, the English sun that cheers but not inebriates, the moral barometer of the school, that had stood so long at change, rose up once more to fair. For a boy is not a bad beast. But as O'Brien, who now laid aside his pipe for a season on the shelf, behind his dictionary, which he never used, voiced it, he wants something to do. And doing there was now in plenty at rugby. Nor were the two friends idle. Once on a fine evening, as they strolled under the great elms in the close, just browning and greening into leaf, they heard a piteous voice from above calling for help. It was a little fellow, meant for a midshipmite, who had climbed halfway up the biggest elm after a jackdaw's nest, and could not get down. Here, hold my jacket, Alan, said Fleming, and was up after him in an instant. But how to help him? Between the branch from which Reefer hung and that on which Fleming stood was a clean ten feet fall and Reefer's short legs, having broken away their intermediate foothold, dangled four feet above Fleming's head. There was no time to be lost. "'I can't hold on much longer,' said the little fellow. "'Then drop,' shouted Fleming, "'and I'll catch you.' And catch him he did, or rather broke his fall, till he stood in trembling safety on their common bow, from which, after taking breath, they descended together. On their reaching the bottom, where a group was assembled, there were always boys everywhere ready to form groups of lookers-on. Gordon gave Reefer a good kicking, just to remind him, while the headmaster's young wife looked over the garden wall and hoped no harm was done. Fleming smiled and said, lifting his cap, No, thank you, only a jackdog's egg broken. But as they went away, he said to Gordon, squeezing his arm, I say, old fellow, it was touch and go up there. I was all but over. I wish I'd kicked the little beggar harder, answered Gordon and as they went on nearer to Big Side, Fleming stopped, and said in a low voice, "'What were you thinking of, Alan, when I called to him to drop?' "'Thinking,' answered the other grimly. "'Why, what to say at the inquest, to be sure?' And Fleming pressed his arm again. He knew what he meant. Then changing the subject, he pointed to the headmaster's study window, and said, dreamily, "'I wonder which I would sooner do, hit a ball from here through Tate's window,' or get a second in the fifth-form verse tomorrow. Which would you do? Gordon laughed. They'd remember, Fleming continued, a big hit like that much longer than a mere second. It's a hundred yards. And so would old Tate, answered Gordon. What a wax he'd be in. Do you remember his giving us the whole aeonid to write out for making a row in the bedroom when Mrs. Tate was ill? And she begged us off, said Fleming. I just learnt how to write with six pens when the good news came. Dear old Tate, with his don't let it occur again. What brutes we were. And then they discussed the fifth form verse, who were in for it, and what the rumors were, and what the chances. And Fleming said, If I do get anything, it will be all you, Alan. That rearing elephant on the ice top, the subject was Hannibal Transit's Alps, with the old fellow on it, cocking the eyeglass to his bad eye, was killing. And the other chuckled, after this the bell rang for lock-up, and they had to go in. 
After supper, as they sate in O'Brien's study, talking over the old rugby and match, which was to be played shortly, Fleming said suddenly, I wonder who'll get his flannels. There's only one place left. Who is it to be, Patty? Who, said O'Brien, why, me, of course. Wilson told Twining yesterday he wanted a good-looking fellow in the eleven. He's so beastly ugly. Ah, he sighed, if I weren't so modest like all in my family, I should have been in long ago. And then the others burst out laughing, and Gordon, who had been drawing, held up a rough sketch of a wild Irishman with one hand tearing his shock of hair, with the other pushing away a pair of flannel trousers held out to him by the captain, known by his high shoulders and hooked nose, and underneath was written, Not for me. What a shame, said O'Brien. You'll ruin my prospects, sir. Will you fight? And then after a little, they all three set to work drawing up imaginary elevens, in which Fleming figured in Gordon's and O'Brien's list, and O'Brien and Fleming's. Two to one against me, said O'Brien. Sure, I told you I was too modest. And then he proposed a plan to Fleming of getting a pair of flannels between them on spec, which should be let out an inch round the waist if Fleming got it, and lengthened by an inch if he got it. I'm getting thin with waiting, said O'Brien, softly, and sighed deeply, at which, after patting him on the back till he ached, they went off to learn first lesson. The next morning there was a great assemblage on the fives court, under the old twenty school, to hear the fifth form verse given out. The first name was that of a well-known scholar, who was well cheered and congratulated by his admiring friends. The next, after a short pause, was that of a worthy fellow, not much known in the school, who, however, received the applause which was his due. Then ensued a long interval, and expectation rose to the highest pitch. What could it be? Who were they fighting over? Fleming's friends were wild with excitement. Even he looked a little pale. The crowd grew larger and larger, and Mr. Anstey, most venerable and beloved of masters, had long passed by into his school, where no one followed him. Then at last the door above was heard to open. A stately step slowly descended the well-worn stair, and the headmaster reappeared. There was a breathless silence. Then came the words, A third prize has been awarded to Fleming. Such a roar followed, such a throwing up of caps and books. His feet of the previous evening had got abroad, much swollen by many imaginations, and had increased his popularity tenfold. And so, with one consent, they all went for him, hoisted him on their shoulders, those at least who first reached him, and bore him about in triumph till both he and they were weary. When they set him down, the first hand that met his was Gordon's, who looked strangely moved. Bravo, Flem. Tate's window next. All oh, your elephant, Alan, whispered Fleming. I knew that would fetch them. Hooray for the old house. And the old house gave him a hearty cheer after dinner, O'Brien leading them, and as Twining, who had just met Wilson in the quad, and heard the news, added, one cheer more for his flannels, O'Brien, head of the twenty-two. The assembled multitude cheered again till the hall was shaken. It seemed they could never make an end of cheering, but amid it all, Fleming remained outwardly unmoved, enjoying his triumph, but not upset by it. Nothing disturbed him. It seemed as if you could not improve upon his look or manner. Whatever happened, he was always the same pleasing and delightful being. And even now, with one arm resting on Gordon's shoulder, 
while with the other he leant upon a cricket-pack, he looked, young as he was, a model for a sculptor. "'Told you so,' said O'Brien, as they went into the close. "'Your turn next, Pat,' was the answer. "'What fun it will be making out the twenty-two. "'Ah,' said the other, "'the boyos will be murdering me entirely. "'There's fifty of them want to get it.' That evening, the young master of whom we have spoken, who was Fleming's tutor, wrote to his father. He told him first of his son's success in the verse prize, which was a great distinction to a boy still in the fifth, not yet promoted into the twenty. But he added, of course he would have been in the sixth by now, but for his delicate health before he came to rugby, which made it inexpedient to press him. So that we hope this may be a spur and an encouragement to him in the future. And then, after a few remarks on his character, which was a little too easy-going and wanting in ambition, he went on, By the by, I must also congratulate you on his getting into the eleven. It has been a very popular selection. I only hope it may not be too much for him. Games and work together are rather a severe strain. To this letter came an answer by return of post from Colonel Fleming. It ran as follows. My dear sir, I am indeed delighted that my son should have won his spurs at so early an age. I have always felt that the sports of a great public school are the best foundation of a manly character, and I rejoice to think that he should have thus found his way into the eleven, and have an opportunity for throwing off that somewhat indolent way of his which you have so kindly noted. Then followed the usual story about the Duke of Wellington and the playing fields at Eton and the old colonel went on. By the way, I am glad also to hear of his having gained a place in, I think you call it, the fifth form verse. Must be a great satisfaction to you and his other masters, and shows the admirable teaching to which he has been subjected. Latin verse was never one of my accomplishments, but doubtless it has its uses. At any rate, Hannibal was one of the greatest masters of war." "'Good heavens!' said the young tutor, breaking off abruptly. "'And so this is the British parent? Poor Fleming! His father thinks we want to make a muff of him. Saved as by cricket. Saved as by football. Merciful heavens!' And then the tutor smiled and thought of his own achievements in old days, in both fields of prowess, and as a cup one at Henley met his eye, he said to himself, "'After all, which did give me the greatest pleasure, that or the balloy. It was a near thing between them. There was a knock at the door. Come in, and in walked Fleming, fresh and smiling, with his poem on Hannibal to be looked over. He looked very happy, and happiness became him. The tutor's heart went out towards him. Ah, he said, you bring your Hannibal, the great half-blind general on his rearing elephant, looking down on Italy. What a man he was! And then he showed Fleming an old likeness of Hannibal, a massive head of tremendous power, with a fierce wild look and almost gorgon hair, and said, What do you think of him? A savage. I don't like him, was the answer. And yet he could be gay and gentle sometimes. Remember, he hated Rome, just as Nelson hated the French. And, by the by, both lost an eye in their country's service. And Philip, too. Philip of Macedon. You remember, he too lost an eye in fighting Athens. Strange, I never thought of it before, but that eyeglass of yours in Hannibal's eye set me thinking. Fleming was getting interested. 
that was Gordon's doing, he said. Well, well, Gordon will be an artist some day if he works at it. But concentration, Fleming. Remember, nothing is ever done without concentration. When you're playing, play. When you're working, work with all your energy. It's the only way. Bah, there is so much flabbiness in the world. No wonder it's a failure. And then they set to work. It was not the tutor's way to alter much in a boy's copy. Wholesale corrections, beautiful passages interspersed in Virgilian style, were not, he thought, good for boys. They were beyond them, like feeding young dogs on marrow bones. His plan was rather to amend and improve the existing poem. And this was done simply by substituting a word here and there, by pointing out obscurities and changing a dull spondee with a ringing dactyl or vice versa, till the young scholar marveled to see himself thus transfigured. "'It seems very easy, sir, to make good verse out of bad,' he said. "'Yes, Fleming, about as easy to hit sixers,' said the tutor. "'You must get the trick of it.' Only once he permitted himself to infuse a new line, where Hannibal was addressing his soldiers, pointing them to the spoils of Italy." Roma jacent longe, spolius Roma apta, superbis detestata veris. Hum, he muttered, rhetorical, superbis, silver Latin, doubtful. However, and then at last, lifting up his head, he said, There, you have been very patient. There were some fearful howlers, I am afraid, sir, said Fleming. Never mind the howlers. My dear fellow, you may howl if you can sing. And really, there's a good deal of swing and poetic feeling in your verse, which may come to something some day. But I was forgetting. I've not congratulated you on the eleven. The eleven. Both on one day. You'd take away your breath. It was a very near-run thing between me and O'Brien, sir. O'Brien? I shouldn't have thought. Surely he wants style. That's what we're always telling him. But he says style don't do in Tipperary. They call it piffering. Well, he has a good eye and will make a figure if he has luck later on. He would be a famous soldier. But talking of soldiers, I've just had a letter from your father, to whom I wrote about your double honor, congratulating. He seems much pleased about the eleven. Fleming smiled, and don't care much about the verses, I fear, sir. He wants me to be a soldier. He would have been a fine soldier himself if he had had the help. He brought me up on stories of forlorn hopes but my mother. He stopped and blushed. Yes, your mother, does she care for the other thing? Immensely. She loves poetry of all kinds. Thinks even Latin verse poetry. Well, poetry and forlorn hopes don't go badly together. There are many kinds of forlorn hopes in the world, if we only look for them. Only, keep your head cool and keep steady. If Hannibal had lost his head on that rearing elephant of yours, there would have been no canine, would there? No, sir, and no Zama. Good, said the tutor, and stretched out his hand to say good-bye. But Fleming's eye was fixed upon the silver cup. Did you win that at Henley, he said, pointing to it. Yes. And had you rowed at Putney against Cambridge? Yes. And got a first also? Certainly, all three in the same year. And which did you like best, sir? Ah, my dear boy, said the tutor, there's no measuring these things. The one excited, the other made me happy. Somewhere between these two extremes, the truth lies. But, and he pressed Fleming's hand warmly, there is, beside these two, trust me, 
a yet more excellent way, which I hope you will know some day. And now good-bye, and good luck to you to-morrow. What a brick he is, Flemmy said to himself, as he went back down the Hillmorton Road. I wonder which he really liked best. I believe it was the cup, though he didn't like to own it. Then he linked himself on to a friend, who was going down the same way. You always saw Fleming arm in arm with someone, and they talked nothing but cricket, 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 all the way to the schoolhouse. Life was very pleasant to him, and when he got to his study, he found there a new bat, with best wishes written on it. What a beauty, he said, and wondered who had sent it. He little thought it was sent to him by his tutor. The next day was the day of the great match, in which, though the old rugbyans won, thanks to the swift bowling of their captain, yet Fleming was not undistinguished. He stood up well to the bowling, glancing some of the swift balls off to leg in a way which was much admired, and finally carried out his bat for fifteen, not a bad score for so young a player. "'Where did you learn that leg glance?' said the old rugbyan captain to him. "'I don't know,' said Flemmy. "'It went off the bat somehow.' "'You'll do,' said the other, and patted him on the back provingly. "'That last went all the way down to Tate's wall, somehow.' And Fleming, hearing this, thought of Tate's window and his talk with Gordon. He was getting on. Now, success acts differently on different minds. Some it encourages, others it makes conceited. In Fleming's case, the enjoyment of the game, with its companionships, was the feeling uppermost in his mind, and at the same time his keenness to win make him think far more of the whole conduct of his side than of his own little success. He was very critical. Why didn't they put on Twining to bowl earlier? He'd have saved the game, he said to Gordon in the evening, and they shifted the field too slowly. It's such wooden play. And when Gordon muttered something about kangaroos being the sort of thing to please him, Fleming laughed and said, You'll draw me as a kangaroo some day, Alan, won't you? And Gordon smiled. Those were golden happy days for both of them. After all, when the noisy triumphs of the playing fields are over, there is a quieter but deeper pleasure in finding them reflected and re-echoed in the eyes and heart of a friend. End of chapter 5